You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it gives voice to the things in our hearts, sometimes the circumstances of our lives. We thank you that that you give us hope and encouragement and strength for every season. And as we come to this psalm together today, which is certainly written for a very dark season in the life of David, King David, the one who wrote it. Uh, May these words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of every one of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning, Riverside. I'm Andrew, and uh, we are now in our third week in the Summer in the Psalms series. First week, I walked us through Psalm 1 inviting us to meditate on the Lord's instructions and to engage wholeheartedly with the company of the faithful or of the righteous. Then last Sunday, Adam led us through Psalm 19, some of the most beautiful poetry ever recorded. Psalm 19, not his sermon, although that was good too. Um, Some truly heartfelt words from our brother. And he encouraged us with that memorable refrain that maybe you've had in your head all week. I know I have. God is speaking to us in every imaginable way for our unimaginable good. But today we turn our attention to Psalm 13. I know it's kind of out of order, but we're not going to cover all 150 of these things, so they may come a little bit out of order as we go. Uh, But I vividly remember the first time I paid any attention to Psalm 13, and oddly enough, it has something to do with my very first mission trip to Mexico, just like our team will be going on soon here, way back in the 1900s. So our group, had, uh, yeah. our group had custom shirts for the trip. Often happens when people go on mission trips. But I don't mean that our group had a custom trip that we all, uh, shirt that we all wore, but that each person in our group had a custom shirt. That's right, they were individually customized because there was a little oval on the front of each shirt. And we had, I don't remember how many words or characters, but we got to put whatever we wanted to, within reason, of course, in that little oval on our shirts. So some people chose their name, a classic. Some people chose a nickname. Some people chose maybe like one or two of the words that they knew in Spanish. Um, And my friend Dan chose for his shirt Psalm 13. Not the entire text of Psalm 13, but just the words Psalm 13. And... uh, Dan was, and still is, a dear friend of mine. He's a couple years older than me, somebody I deeply respect and I've always thought is a pretty wise man. So I thought, seeing that on his shirt, that uh, it just made me especially interested in this psalm. Why did my friend Dan choose that psalm of all the psalms, of all the Bible verses you could have put, John 3.16, right? He put Psalm 13 on his shirt. So I went to read it to see what the buzz was about. And I read Psalm 13, just like Sarah did for us, a moment ago, and I have to confess, it made me a little worried for my friend Dan. You get it, right? Made me a little worried. Is this really your life with God? 
Does this so perfectly describe your life with God that you thought it was t-shirt worthy? 16-year-old me thought, yikes. And I, and I also, I was not the sort of adolescent who was scared of big feelings or of questioning God, but it did make me squirm a little. And sometimes it still does. Psalm 13 is raw, it's dark, it's brutally honest, and it is also unrelentingly hopeful. But Psalm 13 is a prayer. It is a cry for help. Many scholars classify it as an individual lament. It's a very technical term for it. Or uh, it is actually really the model of an individual lament. It clearly takes place in the midst of a spiritual and theological crisis. That is, it's not just that life circumstances are hard for David here, right? Although they are. It's not just that, though. It's that whatever he's facing is also having a serious impact on his relationship with God. Things are being called into question. Perhaps long-held assumptions about the way God is supposed to believe or the way God is supposed to behave and act and respond and listen are being challenged by whatever David is going through in this season. It's a short psalm, only six verses. And it's clearly three sets of two verses. So it's structured like this. The first two verses are a complaint in the midst of crisis. The next two verses are a request, and that's a polite term for it, a request, a begging for deliverance from that crisis. And then the last two verses, verses 5 and 6, is a description of ongoing faith in the midst of the crisis. So it begins with the complaint, verses 1 and 2. For the director of music, a psalm of David. I'm going to read it again. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Notice that before verse 1, and it's not on the screen here, but before verse 1, there's this note that is not just a note that's added by Bible translators, but is actually part of the original manuscripts that says, for the director of music, a psalm of David. For the director of music, a psalm of David. This is a song to be sung in church. Well, it wasn't church back then, but in worship. This is a song to be sung. It is for the director of music. If it wasn't, if it wasn't meant to be sung, it wouldn't be for the director of music, would it? And why do we put things to song? So we can learn them, so we can get them deep into our minds, but also into our hearts and into our bodies. The words that we sing, we know form us deeply. These words would be memorized at the heart level. But I ask, how many of our hymns and worship songs that we sing are as raw as Psalm 13? Not very many, right? If we came in on Sunday and started singing, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? We would be like, we better get to the chorus quick here because I know the chorus is going to be hopeful. Not very many songs like that in our category, in our catalog. Okay, so let's take a look at this section. The first, the first complaint that David has is 100% a complaint against God. How long 
will you forget me forever? Implying, when he says, will you forget me forever, he's implying that he's already been forgotten for quite some time, right? How long will you hide your face from me? Again, implying that he's been hiding his face from him for quite some time. And the move is from passive to active. Notice that. Forgetting is one thing. God, you forgot me. That feels kind of passive. But to hide, to actively hide your face from me, that's even worse. That's like you're trying to hide from me, trying to get away from me. It's one thing to feel forgotten by God, that he might just be too busy with other things to pay attention to little old me. But it is another thing to feel like God is intentionally hiding from me, that maybe I've fallen so far or my problems have become so overwhelming that even God wants to hide from them, to hide from me. Am I utterly forsaken and abandoned by God? And some of you in this room today can name exactly when you have felt like that. You may connect with those words deeply. Maybe it's now. I hope it's not now. But maybe you can think of a time in your life when that was your heart's cry. Times when this prayer would have been the realest expression of your reality, landing exactly where you are. The complaints begin with God. They start shooting right at God. But they don't end with God. Because David then complains about himself, his own thoughts, and the sorrow in his own heart. This is the section where David is praying, God, why did you make me this way? Why did you make me this way? Other people seem to be able to get over stuff. They seem to be resilient. They seem to bounce back. But my thoughts plague me, and my heart is sorrowful beyond my control. And this sounds like the language of depression, doesn't it? For those familiar? I'm not a clinician, and I could not, and I would not diagnose any biblical character with clinical depression or anything like that. But if you experience depression, I would imagine you can relate to David's words here. And over and over again in Scripture, and especially in the Psalms, we are reminded that no matter what we're going through, no matter how hard it is, we are not alone. We are not alone. You are not alone. And then the third and final complaint in this section is the easy one. It is the complaint against his enemies. Easy because, I mean, they're our enemies, right? We feel free to complain against them. How long will my enemy triumph over me? And we don't know the setting or the context in which David wrote this. We don't know the nature of the enemy. We don't know whether it's a person or a group of people or a general affliction of another sort. But we do know that in this moment, it appears that the enemy is getting the best of David. And he says triumph. They are triumphing over me. That is a strong word. For an enemy to be triumphing over me is a decisive proclamation. So David seems to be in three losing battles at once. One against God, one against himself, and one against his enemies. David is taking a lot of L's, as the kids would say. How long, O Lord, David cries out, truly praying for maybe just one of those L's to become a W, right? Or a dub. Sorry, for those losses to become wins. Indeed, yes. We're just going to have to sit with those for a minute. Well, we move on to the next section. 
Because now that David has made his complaints, he's now, if he wasn't already crying, he's crying for help, requesting deliverance. Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. This is where David asks for something from God. And I want to pay attention to the verbs, what he is actually asking for. Look, look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes. Those are three things. Look on me, answer, and give light to my eyes. So the first first request is a simple request to be seen. God, would you look at me? Would you please see what I'm going through? Remember, David has already complained that God has hidden his face from him. Stop hiding from me. Stop stop looking away and look at me, God. That's the first prayer. And in all my years as a pastor, I have encountered this very same desire over and over and over again in people. Very often when people come to me, they don't want me to solve their problems, which is good because I usually don't have the answers to their problems. They often want me, a pastor, to see them, to bear witness to their pain, to not be afraid of it or afraid of them, but to simply sit with them. And of course, there is a time and a place for problem-solving and advice-giving, right? We all need that in our lives sometimes. But where David is and where many of us find ourselves from time to time, the first thing we need, the first thing is a witness, somebody to look and to see what's going on, and to see us in the midst of it. Look on me and answer, the second request, answer. He wants God to respond, to answer. When God appears silent, it can be so disconcerting and discouraging. Some of the most godly people I know have experienced long seasons, actually, as Adam shared about last week, these dark nights of the soul, right? We talked about seasons like that, where there just seems to be no response from God. And that is not necessarily a referendum on your relationship with God. It happens, as I said, to the most godly people I know. But we just want God to see us, see me, say something. These are the frustrated longings of a wounded soul. But then there's that third verb. Look at me, answer, Give light to my eyes. Give light to my eyes. Illuminate my eyes. Help me see. I'm asking you to look at me, but I also want to be able to see better myself. Give light to my eyes. In David's request to give light to my eyes, there's humility. It starts out with kind of just frustration and rage, but now humility. Can you give light to my eyes? Help me see. Even though he's clearly very aware of his own situation, he admits that maybe, maybe I don't actually see the whole picture. Maybe I'm not seeing everything. If he did, he wouldn't have any reason to ask for God to give light to his eyes, right? Maybe I'm missing something here, God. Maybe I'm missing something. If there's something I'm not seeing clearly, God, something about what's happening that could make it even a little bit more tolerable or make a little bit more sense to me, God, Could you just open my eyes to see that? And David is desperate for God to help him see because 
if God doesn't see him, if God doesn't say something, or if God doesn't help him see something, this is what he envisions happening. Verses 3 and 4, Or I will sleep in death, and my enemies will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Quite simply, David says, if God doesn't act, I'm going to die. And given many of the enemies David faced throughout his life, this could be a very literal plea. His life could very well be in danger at this moment. It's not just David being extra or dramatic, right? David's approach is, if something happens to me, it sure will make them happy. If something bad happens to me, it sure will make my enemies happy. They'll rejoice. They'll say they got the best of me, and they'll be right. That's where we end, verse 4. Yikes. On to verse 5. Some of y'all are really, really ready for verse 5. Some of y'all are like, do we have sad sermons all the time? Verse 5, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. So what happened? What happened between verse 4 and verse 5? There's actually been a lot of ink spilled over theories of what may have happened between verse 4 and verse 5. Did God intervene? Was there some sort of call and response where he confessed this and then there was like words of assurance spoken and then, and then he said, oh, okay, now I get it. How does David get to this place? How does he get from the absolute pits of despair to trust, rejoicing, and even singing? Look at Eugene Peterson's words on this passage. He says, There is no evidence in this prayer that even one of his questions is answered. There is no sign that even a first installment is made on granting the petitions. There is no hint that the desperate conditions change into anything less desperate. But abruptly and unaccountably, the laments metamorphose into praise. Metamorphose, transform into praise if you're not into the super crazy long words. Abruptly and unaccountably, the laments metamorphose into praise. Abruptly, yes. Unaccountably, yes. In the sense that there is no account of what changed. Right? They don't tell that story. There could be a whole lot that happened between verse 4 and verse 5. Could be. But we don't know what that is. Did God answer? Did God look at him? Did God give light to David's eyes? And what did that look like? Did anything tangible or verifiable change in David's lived experience? Again, I don't know. But the evidence suggests that yes, he's been seen by God. Right? That that vow of praise this, this transformation into beautiful rejoicing and praise and singing doesn't happen without being seen by God. 
It's clear that on some level God has given light to David's eyes. That this psalm has turned lament and complaint into something new, into faith. And that very turn can certainly be chalked up to God helping David see things in a new way. Whether God has answered specifically and directly, or whether David's openness to God has given him the ability to see things from a different perspective, David has found something here. He's found hope. He's found trust. He's found a new song. He's found joy. He's found a gratefulness for the bounty of God. And I think we all want verses 5 and 6, don't we? Don't we all want verses 5 and 6 in our lives? Come on. We do. We want to be filled with trust. We want to be filled with rejoicing and songs and gratitude for the goodness of God. We want these things. We want this perspective, this beautiful posture towards God and a way of relating to him. But not a single one of us wants to go through verses 1 through 4 to get there. Right? We want to begin at verse 5. And most of the songs we sing in church begin at verse 5, right? Not all of them, right? Most of the upbeat ones do, right? That's why they're upbeat. And it was hard to pick songs for today. I have to admit that. Uh, If we're just focusing on verses 5 and 6, picking songs would be easy, right? But true laments in the spirit of verses 1 through 4 True complaints that give voice to our realest hurts and pains are not easy to find. When we gather together for worship, we don't want to feel like we're wallowing in doubt and unbelief and, God forbid, despair, right? That's not why we come to church. It feels a little dangerous, to be honest, to pray this way. What if someone's faith, someone in the room's faith, isn't strong enough to handle a direct questioning of God's goodness? Fair question. We don't want church to be the cause of people's doubts, do we? We don't want people to walk in carefree and leave with a head full of doubts. But I have to be reminded that this psalm was written for the director of music to be sung in the congregation as a body, to be sung in the gathered community. So what happens if we refuse to lament in church? If we shy away from language that is raw and desperate and demanding? And I can tell you for a fact that people will find other and often unhealthier spaces and venues to lament. How many people find places outside of church to lament? To get off a few complaints? To maybe express your sadness? Sometimes the ways we go to outside of church make no pivot from verse 4 to verse 5. They just end at verse 4, in the pit, in the despair, with no turn towards hope, with no turn towards joy, with no turn towards faithfulness. We often turn, or at least I do, I'm a music guy, but we turn often to artists and poets and songwriters when we want to lament. You turn on the radio, you'll hear serious, heavy laments. But some people take those laments and actually turn them into something beautiful. Leonard Cohen, anybody heard of him? 
much older than me. I, he actually passed away a few years ago. Um, he famously composed the very often covered song, Hallelujah, which if, you see, if you've seen Shrek, you've heard that song, um, which is really weird, but hey. <laughs> um, but Leonard Cohen threaded the needle of traditional biblical lament really well. In this song, you may have heard these lyrics before. It's not a cry you hear at night. It's not somebody who's seen the light. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. Anybody heard those words before? Yes. What a lament. But it's a hallelujah because the word hallelujah means praise God. And sometimes our praises to God are actually cold and broken, but we offer them anyway. But in another song called Anthem, he wrote this. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Forget your perfect offering. How easy is it to be stifled by our fear of getting it wrong? We want to pray perfectly. We want to read the Bible and understand it perfectly. We want to live perfectly. And rather than this perfection becoming a motivator, often it becomes an impossible standard that paralyzes us. Anybody ever been there? Here is where Psalm 13 is liberating. The idea that it's not okay to accuse and blame God for our suffering is not supported by Scripture. I come to, people come to me a lot and say, I, I, I don't want to accuse or blame God. And I say, why not? I'm not saying it's his fault, but you can accuse him and blame him. He can handle it. God is a big boy. It doesn't mean that our suffering is God's fault if we accuse him of it. But if anybody can handle it, he can, he can handle it. We are part of a tradition, tradition of the Old and the New Testament, a tradition of Scripture. We are part of a tradition that is unafraid to propose the possibility that when things hit the fan, it might be God's fault. It's okay for us to explore that possibility. But along with that, along with that, another hugely important thing to keep in mind is that this honest expression and lament did not create David's faith. His faith wasn't born out of this. And we shouldn't expect it to create faith for us either. Being honest and raw and accusing with God, that shouldn't be what, what creates our faith. In other words, don't hear this sermon as a easy steps for growing closer to God. Step one, just yell at him and accuse him of all your problems, right? That's not what, that's not what we're doing here. What's really clear is that before composing Psalm 13, David had faith. Right? It's not controversial to say that David was a person of faith before he wrote Psalm 13. And I think the fact is that his faith and his trust in God allowed him to speak so freely to God. And God's faithfulness is so clear and true amongst the people of Israel that David even submitted it as a song for his whole community. Not just a private prayer that I keep between me and God, but something that could edify everybody's faith. People of faith should not be afraid to bring these things to God. Walter Brueggemann 
puts it this way. The trust so evident in the conclusion of Psalm 13 was in fact the same trust that permitted the lament in the first place. Does that make sense? The trust that he was that was so evident at the end is the same trust that permitted the lament in the first place because of a baseline trust in God. The people of God can let her rip. Not that we drum up the spirit of lament. Oh, how can I get really mad at God today? We're not, we don't need to drum it up. But if that spirit is at work in you, if you are experiencing lament, if you are experiencing these, these real and raw emotions, don't, don't add shame and fear to them. Just bring them directly to God. Again, he can handle it. This ties directly into Adam's words from last Sunday. If the season you are in right now is pretty good, then sing loud, right? Because other people might need that faith. Other people might need to hear that loud rejoicing voice because they might not be able to sputter even a sound out of their mouths. Lean into verses 5 and 6 if you are experiencing the bounty of verses 5 and 6. And let's look at those again. But I trust in your unfailing love. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation, God. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Trust, rejoicing, singing God's goodness. If you are able to sing, my friends, sing. If you are able to rejoice, rejoice. If you're experiencing God's goodness, praise him. And in all things, trust that this is his desire for you. That though all life will not be butterflies and roses, God is trustworthy. Again, you may not be able to lend your full-throated voice to the promise of verses 5 and 6. But we can carry it for each other. We can carry the fire for each other. And I really hope it's encouraging for you as it is for me that there is a crack in everything. I think Leonard Cohen was right. There's a crack in everything. It's not just you. It's not just your neighbor. It's everyone and everything. And those cracks are precisely how the light gets in. No crack is wasted. God's light will shine. And we bring all of ourselves, our trust and our doubts, our perfections and our cracks, we bring it all to the table of grace and mercy. Let's pray. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. Yeah. The sorrow may last for a night, but the joy comes in the morning. Our God turns our mourning into dancing. We need to cling to all of these words in the context of what we talked about today, right? None of that is permanent. None of that is what God desires for us. But God meets us exactly where we are. 
So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and not hide his face from you, to shine upon you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen? Amen, my sisters and brothers. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.